Many years ago, can you hear me in the back? <clears throat> I attended a, a demonstration of uh, Zen archery by uh, a Zen master who was also a, a master of, of archery, Zen archery. And it was during the summer, it was a beautiful day, there were a few hundred people gathered to watch, the target was out, uh, this uh, archery master came out, special clothing, special, I don't have words for all the different kind of gloves and gauntlets and elbow things, and a very large bow, a very small shooter, and he uh, did certain exercises and without the bow and with the bow and then we were all waiting and it was a tremendous preliminary leading up to it. We were all just waiting. There was a the target. Finally, he pulled the arrow back, held it, it seemed like forever. We were all just watching and then he just shot it up into the air. And it's taken me about 30 years to figure out what he was really doing. What he was saying was the target is everywhere. And <clears throat> now maybe he does not, he can't hit the target, he didn't want to be embarrassed, but <laughs> I don't think so. Um, what I'd like to do this evening is to continue some of the remarks Michael made on the first evening uh, about retreat life our days here together. Um, what I'd like to do is present a model that I hope is helpful for us. As all models, it will be have certain limitations uh, because there are other ones around that are somewhat different. Now, for those of you who have never been on a retreat, which is a sizable number of you on this retreat, uh, I don't want you to think that this is the, this is the way, although... Personally, I think it is superior. Um, whereas those of you who've been on a lot of retreats, this, uh, uh, see what you think. Um, <clears throat> typically, at the end of a retreat, there's a talk that's called an integration talk. And so we've been leading a very quiet life, lots of sitting and walking and silence. You know, what you've already done for the better part of a day, and it will keep going. Um, and then it's time to go home. And so the talk is preparing the ground for going home, for integrating the practice from here to get to there, which is home, whatever home is for each one of us. And a language develops. The, what is there is called the real world. And I don't know if the staff still does it, but uh, a number of years ago, a staff would refer to when they would come into a personal retreat, they would call going into yogi land. And leaving, does it still go on? You call it yogi land? Or? Okay. That's what you're in now. Yeah. Um, it's special, and of course it is. And uh, one of the reasons uh, uh, we started a center in Cambridge is that. Uh, <clears throat> We were practicing this way. Even before there was an IMS, I'd done lots of long retreats. And there's a language that exists uh, in retreat centers, and it's not just here. Um, 
And it's, it's, uh, it seems to be this kind of opposites thinking is in a lot of spiritual situations so that you have the real world and you have, uh, let's say, contemplative life here. Those are descriptive terms. They may be of some use. And you get sacred and profane. Uh, you get uh, splits between the body, which in some traditions is a tremendous barrier to God or to enlightenment. Uh, I was in the yoga tradition for quite a while, for, uh, and there, uh, <clears throat> very clearly, it became the body people and the mind people. There were those people who just basically did hatha yoga and pranayama and had wonderful bodies and probably lived forever and uh, looked great in spandex and other outfits. And then there were the rest of us, you know, who just sit there and meditate. Uh, and it became like a split, and it isn't so much in yoga. They're, what they would call meditation, at least in the scenes that I was part of, was relatively superficial compared to what we do here. And then when I started coming to Buddhism regularly, there seemed to be the body was not uh, given all that much attention. The Buddha talks about moderation, which is that little word can take you a long way. It's quite sensible. Uh, and perhaps people were in decent shape. They walked so much in ancient times. But there isn't uh, a real concern with diet and breathing and postures and the spine and so forth. Uh, so then if you're a monk, it's called the holy life, entering the holy life. And so living amidst these, uh, I took them for granted, until finally it sort of got to me. Because what I saw was what can happen is that we create, and there may be some usefulness in, in uh, highlighting a certain aspect of life, but finally I see it as a limitation uh, in the mind. It's all in the mind. There's just life. Uh, if you didn't know anything, you didn't have, uh, if we didn't have our head filled up with all kinds of religious teaching and Dharma teachings and just looked around, there are just people living their life. And even people who are supposedly who are holy, let's say, they're wearing clothing. And okay, it's different than the ones who are construction workers. And everyone's doing what they do. And then to go inside, you might see some real differences in the mind and so forth. No denying that. Um, but what I saw was that uh, it was an attitude which featured quietude, which featured sitting, which featured doing it in special places like IMS, and in Asia was the same. I practiced in Asia for quite a while. Um, and in Asia, the lay people, for the most part, take care of the monks who do the heavy lifting, the real meditation, and some nuns. That, that's changing now. More and more nuns are being taken seriously. Um, and some lay people are, are very serious about practice, but they're, they were infrequent, at least in Korea, Japan, and and in Thailand, the main job is to take care of those people who were really uh, had chosen the holy life. Uh, <clears throat> the point is, at a certain point, I just started to see these uh, as hallucinations or as ways that may be useful for some people, but hallucination is the wrong word. I don't mean to be derogatory, because we all have some language and some distinctions, but... Um, what I saw was, in this country, 
it took a few years to realize it. In this country, lay practice is very different than it was in Asia, at least where I was. And checking with my friends, it didn't seem to be any different. There are a sizable, sizable number of lay people who do not want to be monks or nuns and who are very serious about practice. And we try to come to retreat centers like this as often as we can. Some people have the good fortune of living here. I'm not trying to suggest some ideal way of life, hardly. But the, the facts are that most of us, I don't know you, perhaps all of us, let's just say most of us, you're probably not going to become a monk or a nun. You're probably uh, going to hold down a job. You may be in or out of a relationship. And I'm not saying to be in one is great, to not be in one is terrible. It's up to you. You may be in school or not in school. In other words, you're going to be in the world in one way or another. When we talk about the real world, and then in, even in ancient literature, it's talked about uh, the world. You, you go into uh, a, go to a monastery. Let's say lay people would sometimes go to a monastery for, for a brief uh, period, and leaving the world of dust. Dust means sort of dust on our eyes, delusions, and uh, you know, just running wildly after greed, hatred, and delusion running after sex, money, fame, power. And then finally, what a relief, come to a monastery, which is a place which is not the world of dust. Um, As my mind became clearer relative to where I started, I'm not saying some big, clear mind, I just looked around and I just felt uh, we needed a practice that, although the core of the Buddhist teachings has nothing to do, it's universal, and that's what's so beautiful about it. It has to do with suffering and the end of suffering. These principles, you don't even have to be a Buddhist to benefit from it. They're lawful. Craving, attachment, suffering. Test it. See if it's so. You don't have to have special clothing for that. You don't have to. You can. And if that helps you, wonderful. So what I started to see is that um, there was a certain danger in, for, for lay people. Us. Me. Um, who are in the world in one way or another, who have children or are in relationships, have partners, would like to get into a relationship, would like to get out of a relationship, whatever it is that we're doing. Um, and our practice, we look at ourselves through the eyes of a monastic perspective. The core teachings are not. They're universal. Uh, but there's a certain way in which we look at life that you can wind up neither, being neither having, not having ardency or real vigor and vitality in your practice or in the world. You wind up being some kind of in-between category. And you can stay that way for a while. Um, so let me suggest another model. I didn't make it up, by the way. I learned it from, there are teachers who see it this way and in ancient India, long before Buddhism, long during Vedic times, uh, most or many of the great masters were married and had children, families. Their, their disciples would live with them in the family, and that was so that they could see them in action, to see if they were walking their talk. And, of course, so the teachers could see the students. And, you know, they also had solitude and silence. Um, what I'd like to suggest is Uh, for the moment, throw out the real world that's out there, yogi land, all these different terms. 
and understand that finally there's just life. That's all there ever was. That's all there's ever going to be. There's just this. This is it. I once uh, was badgering one of my teachers in Japan and asking him all kinds of questions about Satori and awakening and what is that and this, this. And finally, he just came right into my face and he said, screamed at me, this is it. In other words, this, you know, these hands, this, your life as it is. You find yourself being a certain way at this point. You know, you can explain how you got here with genetics and, uh, you, you know, your mommy didn't know your daddy didn't treat and this school and that situation. But here we are. And to me, one of the beauties of the practice is you begin exactly where you are and it keeps being like that. So to me, there's just life. There's nothing else. Daily life, a retreat has daily life. Hey, uh, certain activities within daily life and even here. Uh, I, I hope this was followed through. I don't know. I found out for years here, people would have a choice as to what yogi job they could have. And they would kind of turn up hours early. So they could, there used to be a library where the offices, they get the job of feather dusting, you know, on the books and... And then some, someone else would be assigned uh, sort of the, doing the pots, you know, it's sweat pouring down. The, uh, now, I get, you know, if you get, I guess, dishes, it's longer, and your friends are out taking a walk, maybe not today. Uh, and that I thought that, that was um, defeating the purpose of, uh, of one way that retreats can be helpful and while being clearly different than what we call daily life, uh, they needn't be set off in opposition to, because I see certain price we pay for doing that, in that this is where the real work gets done, and then we go back and, you know, we earn enough money so or arrange our vacation time and uh, talk to our, our partners, uh, tell them how important it is for us, and then so that we can come back to the next retreat. In the meantime, nine months can go by, ten months can go by. Well, what is that? Is that chopped liver? I mean, that's our life going by. And then we scurry to a cushion. And you know, those of you who are new to this, you can get very happy. You may not, maybe right now you doubt it. Just simply following the breath. Just simply following. And it is nice that you can temporarily table uh, relationships and the boss you don't like and uh, you know, all kinds of things that do make up life. Not, they don't go away. The world is exactly the way it is. Internationally, you look at it, this is the way we actually live in these times. This is really true. And then you can go make it smaller, your family, your relationships, your work. This is really happening. This is it. This is what we have to work with. So, um, I'd like to suggest another model, which is all there is is life. That's all there ever was. That's all there's ever going to be. And that the purpose of life is to live, is to live it. What else? That's, I can't think of a more fundamental purpose. Now, out of that, personally, the Buddhist teaching has helped me to bring some clarity to when I was an undergraduate, I loved Socrates, the questions he asked, and I fell in love with those questions. But all I did was, you know, just get teary-eyed and, uh, and think and think and think. He would, he would ask questions like, uh, you know, who am I? And he would say things like, "An une- pretty tough teaching, an unexamined life is not a life worth living. And he would say, the big question is, how is one to live? 
That's one, I don't mean that I, maybe no one ever solves it finally, but I wrestled with that one for many years. How am I to live? Do you know that question? It's a a real question. It's not you solve it once and for all. Maybe sometimes in a big way you do, but then all kinds of things keep coming up on it from day to day, from moment to moment. What's the right action here? What's correct there? How do do I do with this person who's a pain, that person who wants something that I I don't want, etc.? It doesn't go away. So how is one to live? And the practice can help us tremendously. So in this model, is daily life here too. We go to the bathroom, you know. We do number one, number two. We eat, we dress, we wash, we look in the mirror. And no relationships here because we're silent. Baloney. You're affected by some people, aren't you? You notice them, two socks that don't match, you get irritated. Or they have a nervous habit, they're sitting next to you, clearing their throat. Yeah, sitting after sitting after sitting. Well, who knows what it is? They take too much or not a little, not enough food. It can be anything. Or here we have a concept for Vipassana VR, Vipassana romance. Some of you know they've been around. You can fall in love here and uh, court the person and get married and divorced all in one retreat. <laughs> and you never even met the person. Then they open their mouth during integration day and you just run for the hills. They aren't <laughs> They're not exactly who you thought they were. And, of course, they see you the same way, if they were kind of exchanging looks with you. Um, so there's a daily life going on here. We have a, a yogi jobs. We now, I hope it's, now you, it's the luck of the draw. First come, first, you get a, whatever job you get. Unless there's a physical reason, of course. If there's a medical reason, we're not trying to... Uh, make you a a bigger misfit than when you got here or have more problems than when you got here. Uh, So whatever job you get, all these issues are, it's a different attitude. The attitude has to do with respect for whatever you do. Now we have to learn how to do that. Uh, One way of translating the Buddha's teaching, it's the way I see it. With the Buddha, he's often likened to a great physician who's healing the, the spiritual wounds of, of, uh, of humans. But he's also a great educator to me. They're not, it, they're not in conflict. Good physicians and the ancients were also great teachers. They taught you how not to get sick, how to take care of yourself. Uh, what the Buddha says to me is, human race, you don't really know how to live, do you? Look at all this suffering. So much of it unnecessary. I'm paraphrasing for those of you who have never read the Buddha. Uh, because you don't understand. You don't see clearly. You're not a- your seeing is not accurate. You don't really understand yourself. And if you don't understand yourself, that's what you bring into contact with everyone else, and they're doing it with you too. And the world looks the way it does, because we are the way we are. And he said, look, all right, here are a couple of hints. The Buddha at first didn't want to teach. He thought it was hopeless. Really. And they said, look, there's some people with just a little <laughs> dust on their eyes and they can be helped, so please go out and teach. I don't know what really happened, but that's the story. Fortunately, it did. So we have whatever uh, we have available. It's the best thing available, record. We don't know how, how accurate it is, but it's the best we have. The sutras 
of what the Buddha taught. And even if it wasn't the Buddha, like I have friends in Cambridge who criticize, saying, how do you know it was the Buddha? There's all this historical, archaeological, historical documents that there was, he never spoke Pali. Uh, this couldn't have happened. That was 200 years later. The, let's assume there was no person like the Buddha, that it was a think tank with 10 very smart people at Stanford and some Palo Alto and some think tank. And uh, they got a big fellowship, and they cooked this up. Does it work? Does it help you? It helped me. But it, but the Buddha doesn't exist. Don't do it. Why shouldn't I do it? It works. Do you see what I'm getting at? It's very pragmatic. It's what I, I'm going to. This plot will thicken. You'll see in a moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, Here's, here's what some value of this model might be. Instead of set, of course, this setting is very different than what's at home for most of us, perhaps all of us. It is dramatically simplified, everything that Michael said, and it's a beautiful environment to help us learn, learn about ourselves and grow. What I'm trying to say is that um, take advantage of that there's a teaching uh, that I had many, many years ago, uh, and it goes something like this. Every situation has a certain intelligence built into it. It would be, what is correct action here? What is correct action? If you're driving a car, just drive. That's correct action, etc. So here, uh, be quiet. Do what Michael and I say. Uh, in other words... Take this practice seriously, not to necessarily feel that this is holier or, or, or superior to what you will do when you get back to your job on, on whenever, Monday perhaps, Thursday, whenever, but because this is what your life is right now. And what it's saying is the holy life is life, whether you have robes or don't have robes. The monastic path is a wonderful path and works for some people who are cut out for it. So what I'm saying is, we may not be. So we need a path that uses our, the materials of our life rather than uh, a poor imitation of uh, or just uh, setting aside one kind of activity, running off to different meditation centers and thinking that's it, as precious as that is. And what we try to do in Cambridge is value both. What I try to do, Michael, certainly... We, go, we do retreats, we practice, and we also throw people back into their families and work and, you know, fine, you bring this teaching into your life. See what happens. Come back and tell us about it so that there isn't this split, this dichotomy at all, that there's just life and each, each situation calls for something else. What correct action is in this situation, of course, isn't when you go to work on Monday. When you go to work on Monday there's a different correct action and then be sensitive to that and bring wholehearted attention and the mindfulness, the calm. If there's a little bit of wisdom and kindness that comes out of the retreat, bring it there. And so each situation is precious. Uh, and let's say you, you get the job of uh, some horrible job here that you hate, uh, cleaning a toilet. This is one that many people don't like. And we have some dramatic stories of people who didn't want to do it. Um, 
who said that cleaning a toilet is less valuable than certain other things? The point is the mind makes that up and try living without the toilet. For example, um, if Michael and I gave you the teaching on the first day and then we split and came back the last day, you could get by. But if there was no toilet paper, the place would go crazy. So everything has its place and its importance. So that practice here would be, let's say you feel tremendous resistance to cleaning a toilet. Or you feel bored by whatever it is you're doing here that's not really sitting or walking. It's not formal practice. Fine. It's not to do an impersonation of being the bright-eyed yogi who's alert every second of the day, has not missed one in-breath or out-breath, but rather to see that, to be with it, because that's what the truth is. So with this model, wherever you are, that's, there you are again. Uh, it's not quoting a book. It comes from Buckaroo Banzai, a mo- the worst movie I ever saw. But it has this line in it within the first 20 minutes. It says, wherever you go, there you are again. And I said, wow, amazing. But then the film was so bad I walked out. But I never forgot the line. It's true, isn't it? So here we are at IMS. Do IMS. Really do it. When it's over, let it go. And do your children or your boss or the the medical condition that you're in or whatever it is, whatever whatever your life is at that moment. Um, What I'm getting at is that uh, a a whole life for whole people, since we're lay people and since realistically for most of us, most of our life will not be on a cushion, we have no choice but to learn how to live in every aspect of life. Otherwise, I don't see anything of any real depth coming out of our practice. uh, If the only time we can be happy is in special situations, that's a little sad because we live most of our life in so-called real world. There's only one world to me. This is real. This has challenges. You probably already know that. It's, the real world isn't the only world that has challenges. This has different challenges. It's not a piece of cake to keep sitting and walking all day long. And then when we get home, there are different ones. Uh, it's so precious because it's what your life is at this moment. It's life that's precious. And liberation, this can be a path that's sometimes called Tantra. I've been told that this teaching is Tantra. So I'm starting to read a little bit about it. Um, I don't, it doesn't sound too much like what I'm some of it, but whatever you want to call it, it's been around where there's a genuine respect for the wholeness of life, W-H-O-L-E. Not just, because it's so easy for it to become a cliché. Mindfulness in daily life, mindfulness in all, uh, wherever you are, be aware, learn, and so forth. And there are challenges that I don't see being that I didn't see being met in Asia, frankly, and sometimes I don't see them being met here. Um, the Chinese did us all a very good turn, I feel, as lay people, as we are here in 2007. This was uh, more than a thousand years ago, when the teaching came to China from India. India was a very otherworldly culture. And so 
monks, to this day in Theravada, monks did not plow the earth. Monks, there are many, many things that, uh, that monks didn't do. Well, this appalled the Chinese who were much more earthbound. Here would be able-bodied men who would just uh, wouldn't do things like that, and everyone else had to scurry around and, and uh, grow food and feed them and all this. And a, uh, a, a Chan master, Chan is the original name, Zen came later in Japan, named Peichang, said a day of no work is a day of no eating, and he put his monks to work. Because culture matters. Every culture is different. We have to adapt to our culture, but keep our eye conserving what's really essential, which is, you know, has nothing to do with any culture. And it's that balance. How do we honor our time and place? In this case, the United States in 2007, wherever you are. And yet, craving attachment Greed, hatred, delusion, I don't think they're out of style. They seem to still be true. Uh, and there are many aspects of the teaching seem to be free of time and space and culture and doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman or Asian or whatever. But so Pei Chang changed that, and one interpretation is that's what saved Zen because the emperors came along who uh, destroyed many of the monasteries, withdrew funds and made monks disrobe, but they spared Zen. At least many monasteries in them, because they could. It was more familiar to them. But if you read the Zen texts, they're always talking about uh, chopping wood and catching water. They're not talking about uh, relating to your wife at eight thirty in the morning when you're both bleary-eyed, or six thirty in the morning, over a cup of coffee, and you don't like what you're being told. So relationship has been neglected. Um, I would say. Fortunately, psychotherapy, Freud, and all of the ancestors, all of his descendants who landed here, have opened that up. A lot has been done. And it's now, if, as lay people, it's, it's not a matter of chopping wood and carrying water, or carrying whatever it is. Uh, because what I've seen in Asia is the relationship part of that teaching, which is much more comfortable in the world. The teaching is that life and practice are the same thing. It's a wonderful teaching, but I've seen sometimes it doesn't uh, go very deeply into relationship. Either it'll just say, just do the precepts and everything will work out okay. Or a kind of, I see it because people, a dime store psychotherapy, you know, when, for, in other words, we're Dharma teaching, we're kind of cheap therapists. It's a, it's a good, you know, we don't charge whatever it is an hour, you know, some exorbitant rate high rate, let's just call it that, uh, and a, a couple's therapy, which is valuable, invaluable, and so is following the precepts, but it doesn't have that subtlety, that nuance, and also it doesn't have a, a clear, evident uh, demonstration that this is a high spiritual practice. It is not trivial to use relationship as a practice, where relationship is not just an intimate one. Relationship to people, relationship to nature, relationship, of course, first and foremost, to yourself, to things, to money, to food. But let's say the most difficult one for all of us is people, the human race, that is. And monks and nuns are always making fun of the life of, you know, oh, look at that daily, we're not missing anything out there. These folks, they just, uh, marriage is a nightmare, and they just volunteer for it anyway, and 
make, you know, they have all this honeymoon and romance, and now look at them. They come running here. So it is difficult, but that's what we do. So can that be a practice in and of itself? Of course it can, but we have to decide that we need to do it. So every aspect of life is respected. Um, What I saw, and you see it over here as well, it's been a catastrophe. Uh, I know the Zen scene much better than Theravada. I think it isn't as bad, nowhere near. You have people in the different Zen traditions. I was in Zen for eight years, mainly in uh, Japanese and Korean style. And they've passed all the koans. Sometimes there are three main collections. But they have one koan when they, the, the masters arrived here. They didn't pass one koan. You know what that koan is? The lady koan. Flunked that one badly. And a second one, the money koan. Uh, so apparently... Uh, the training, it's possible to go under the radar with that one. And so what happens here is, wow, look, it's just that we're at home in the candy store. Everything is available here. Women are, you know, friendly and free, and there's money all, and people just did it. A lot of suffering came from so-called masters. Now, this may sound cynical, but my question is, what have they mastered? I didn't make that up either. One of the, the most impressive approach to Zen that I found in Japan was Uchiyama Roshi's, and I asked one of his disciples, how does he decide uh, who's a Zen master? He doesn't refer to himself as a Zen master. And I said, he doesn't do that. He doesn't consider uh, that Zen can be mastered. I felt like, wow. Life is challenging for all of us. Okay. Um, So now, here we are. How are we to live? This is a framework. Let me, let me make suggestions. For example, there are some people who do engage Buddhism, who are very concerned with the, uh, the state of the world. Uh, and I've spent time in engaged Buddhist circles, and there are some people, some, probably many of us here, uh, some of you are new, I wouldn't, perhaps you don't know enough yet, but you know, we're more on the contemplative side, we may have political values, but we're not spending a huge amount of time uh, engaging in things. And what I found is that becomes another opposite. You have the engaged Buddhists who don't really go very deeply in sitting or in, in depth in the contemplation, and then the meditators who don't care about what's happening to the world. It's just, yeah, of course, it's uh, samsara. It's just going to roll on. Does that split have to be? Is it possible to be interested in engaged Buddhism and also do retreats and practice? And in fact, as a result, for your engaged Buddhism to be better, more effective, is it possible to to raise a family and to also have a strong meditative life so that uh, you don't make this split and feel that if only you didn't have so many children, you could really practice? Because what this is saying is your children are your practice. And that can become a cliché, but it really isn't if you take it seriously. Try, you know, people are... That requires seeing relationship in a somewhat different way. That relationship is a mirror, and it teaches you about yourself. And uh, some of the, uh, the, the deepest teachings have to do with freedom from me and mine, 
those of you who are new, this may not mean much to you, but the Buddha is once challenged. And he's saying, look, by someone, I don't have much time. Uh, what's the core of your teaching? Just what's the bottom line here? And the Buddha says, don't attach to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. Whereas that's what we're doing all the time. The hardest thing to renounce, it's not all that difficult if you get in the right circles to have one meal a day or to have very few clothes. What's really difficult is to renounce the tendency to identify with virtually anything and everything as being me or mine. And the practice is undercutting that. It's, it's so that nothing brings up, in my experience, me or mine, like a relationship. I've sat long, silent retreats and felt immaculate. And all it takes is 45 minutes back in Harvard Square, and uh, I'm nowhere. Now, it isn't that that was a waste of time. It's that there are no, there's certain challenges that are not here, and there are certain challenges that are here and not in Harvard Square. Certain things potentially can be learned here, not very difficult in Harvard Square, Harvard Square being symbolic, it's not that I just walk around Harvard Square all the time. <laughs> Can you spare some change? <laughs> well, actually, if you weren't all, you know, having a lot of dukkha and coming here, that's probably what I'd have to do. I'd have to get a regular job, and I've used that one up. So, I'm, you know, it's good that we have dukkha, so, you know, we can make a living here, such as it is. Um... So what I'm trying to say is the mo- this difficult practice, and I have found a few phrases from Tantra which, which do, are helpful. One is, a bad situation is a good situation because there's tremendous energy trapped in these difficult situations. If work is hard for you or relationship is hard for you or whatever it is, uh, that's a form you're enslaved. You're not free. Now, if we can take bring awareness to it with the intention to learn and understand rather than to judge. That means bringing the very same skills that we're developing here, this ability to pay attention in a non-judgmental way without clinging, without pushing away. We're refining that ability. That's the core. If 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 we can't learn the art of pure observation, whatever language you want to use, mindfulness, awareness, attention, uh, it's going to be very limited because uh, accuracy is, and to me, liberation are totally related. If you're not seeing the world accurately, then the behaviors are not going to be in touch with what's really, with the lawfulness of the way things go, whether it's interpersonally or otherwise. And so a lot of what we're refining again and again and again is this ability to develop a clear mind a clear mind that is unwavering in the face of varying conditions. The weather conditions change internally, but can the mind become stable and clear? And that's what we're working on. Um, Next time I'd like to go into um, some guidelines, because it's one thing to say, okay, life is your practice. A bad situation is a good situation. That's a nice guideline. So that we, we're more, if we start to develop confidence in that, then we can welcome situations which we avoided. We'll learn how to approach them. Another a tantric saying is that that by which human beings fail is that by which they can succeed. So as we turn everything around, 
what normal people don't want to have anything to do with, we welcome it. But it's not embracing it, it's learning from it. And the only way you can learn in any way that's transformative is you have to allow that to be what it is, not be in a hurry to solve a problem. We're always so in a hurry to solve our problems that we never really become intimate with the problem. And we bring the old mind, which is part which causes the problem, we try to think our way out of it. Has it worked? It hasn't worked for me. So we need a fresh, clear mind that's free of the past conditioning. And to not be in a hurry to get to, to heal everything and fix everything, but to be with the way it is. And of course, all of the, so much of the training has to do with now. And maybe I'll end with this. Don't underestimate the simple in and out breath. Because you all know about the present moment and power of now, you know, there are a number of titles, lots of titles now. Yeah, the practice finally is about now. Uh, one teacher I had, he, uh, uh, his name was uh, Ajahn Mahagosananda from... Uh, where was he from? He wasn't from Thailand, Cambodia. Cambodia. And he would just drop in unexpected sometimes to Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And I remember one time he just put this teaching. He said, the whole Dharma is a question of whether you eat time or time eats you. So practices, we learn how to eat time rather than being eaten up by time. What he's talking about is psychological time where we're enslaved to what the mind makes up about how I used to be, how I think I am now, how I will be. Well, in order to the practice again and again and again, if you've noticed, so much of what we're doing is learning how to come back to what is, just the way it is right now. And the mind um, takes shelter so often in what might be or what used to be because it doesn't like what is, at least much of the time, if it does, why does it work so hard to avoid direct, intimate experience of what is? What is is just this, however it is for you right now, for me right now. And we have endless shelters that we can take that keep us from feeling what is forever. If that helped, great. I haven't seen that work. So the practice is to come back to now again and again. And I'll leave you with this reflection. We can start here next time. The present moment has immense significance, immense, uh, because otherwise, what's this big deal about present moment? Why do they make such a fuss over it? Why not uh, spend a lot of your time in imagining a future or reliving the past? Why not? What is this always coming back to the actuality of the way it is right here, right now? Uh, life is lived that way. It's from here now to here now to here now to here now. That's all. It seems it keeps being like that. Every time you were fully with an in-breath, not from looking at it from a distance, not detached, but opening up and fully experiencing those sensations, you're fully in the moment with that breath. So you're already learning that. And then the mind wanders. Typically it goes off into some fanciful future more interesting to it than the breath, at least for a while. Or a past that was either wonderful or awful. And the practice is again and again and again coming back to the way it is now. Let's start from that next time.
Also, what I want to emphasize, um, what one way of looking at what the Buddha is teaching is that the Buddha is, say, is saying we're having a difficult time living, us humans. And so the challenge becomes learning how to live. To me, Dharma practice, it has lots of skills that we learn. But it isn't something that's done mechanically. If you just do it like you're learning, become proficient in a set of skills, eventually it becomes lifeless, mechanical, and dead. Just tired, repeating it in, out, in, out, in, out. Uh, You quit or something happens. Although there are things that we repeat again and again, there's also um, a fresh aliveness to life which requires discovery and learning about ourselves. It's not covered altogether in textbooks, Buddhist books, or even by any of the words that any of us can give. Life is so much more rich than that, and it overflows the boundaries of conceptual models. And yet, we have a model, we have some ideas that are very, very helpful, but it's a a commitment to learn. Um, Here's a split, and then we can start with this next time. I said that a few times already. I'm starting to get paranoid about what Michael might be thinking. I don't think he cares, you know, but (laughs) I don't know how it was for you, but um, going to public school, growing up, for me, it was in Brooklyn, New York. Um, There was, you go to school and you learn. That's for learning. And we had devoted teachers uh, and you learn things. You learn how to do math and how to read and all kinds of subjects. And then you go home to live. So you live when you go home, you learn in school. Um, what I've been saying for the last however long is that can we turn life, learning the art of living is what Dharma practice is about. And it's not theoretical. You can't get it from just memorizing the Dhammapada. Uh, Each of us has to learn it in the process of living in the fire of our own life. And so learning Lots of wonderful skills are learned at retreat centers and in schools. But the kind of learning, the art of living, which is obviously woefully neglected, we, meaning the human race, we don't know how to do it too well. We are extraordinary otherwise, extraordinary. What pours out of this human brain seems to be no end to it. The inventions, we can fly, we can go underwater, we can kill each other in extraordinarily ingenious and powerful ways. Uh, we have computers now that are getting faster. and You know, this comes out of this brain, so it's a magnificent instrument we have, but it looks like you can't get enlightened through that. So the brain can keep improving transportation and rapidity of information and uh, quantity, everything. But unless people come to understand and know themselves and let go of and unlearn what needs to be unlearned, we're going to have a world with fantastic technology and poor human beings, terrified, always anxious, worried, killing each other off. Ooh, terrible way to end. (laughs) I've got to save it somehow. (laughs) 
That's why we're here. <laughs> we're the chosen few. We have a we have a chance to wake up and and be free. Okay. Let's do some meditation while walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.